Hi, I'm Sage. I'm here with Adam. And for this, our 15th episode, uh, another question. What is the future of RPGs? The future, future, future. Yeah, this was kind of inspired by it being our last episode of the season and by having just been to Gen Con, which I always kind of feel like shows like it always makes talks me about think up about, and coming type of stuff yeah and it makes me think about like what is next year's gen con gonna look like um oh, man or you know five ten years somebody taking my kids to gen con what's gen con gonna look like then oh geez are you so are you thinking future year two years five years ten years a hundred years i left it deliberately open um Mine are probably all in the the five to ten kind of range how about, how about yeah you? i think i think predicting beyond then is is even predicting a year out is hilarious, but predicting exactly. more than more than ten twenty is just impossible. So. This entire show is basically going to be sound bites that somebody can play for us in one to five to ten years and, and laugh at how horribly wrong yep. we were. Yes, all the things that we got wrong. Precisely. So we're not talking about the millennial RPG. No, no, and uh, there. Uh, let's see. Daniel Solis did like the thousand year game design challenge at one point. We're not talking about that. Like mm-hmm. we're not talking about. What, what do RPGs evolve into? Uh, right. I mean, really, we're relatively early in the lifespan still. We're at 41 years. Oh, Josh. Gosh. Um, so uh, I think the outside end of my prediction is probably 41 years from now, because that's about as far as uh, we have an established pattern for. Double as long. Yeah, things are very... Things are different, but they're not... It's not like it's unrecognizable to somebody yeah. from the 70s, I don't think. I, I don't think so either. Uh, but I think the, the danger with predictions, and maybe this is just because I've been reading the, the third Dune book, is that like predictions always, uh, seeing the future always kind of controls the future. Like whatever, whatever we talk about here has some tiny effect on what the future actually is. Some tiny effect to the 22 people that listen to the yeah, podcast. They, 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 <laughs> <laughs> we often get a little more than that, but to the twenty-two of you. Yeah. <laughs> so, do you have a do you have a list of three? Then I have a list of three. Go what for it. Number okay. one. I'll start with my number one, uh, which is kind of the safest bit of the three. Not much is going to change. Yeah, yeah, pretty much, right? <laughs> uh, a friend, family friend, uh, does a prediction thing every year where they try and predict things five years out and ten years out, and mm-hmm. they put them in a box, yep. uh, in an envelope for that year. And so then, at, before they do their predictions, they'll pull out the ones from ten years ago and five years ago and say, oh yeah, we thought this was going to be true, but it's probably not going to be true for another ten years, because yeah. things just are slow. Yeah, as people have been predicting jetpacks and self-driving flying cars. The self-driving part we're actually getting to. But, uh, self-driving flying cars. See, either self-driving cars or flying cars, maybe, but <laughs> self-driving flying cars? I mean, the self-driving cars aren't common yet, but in some ways they have, like, happened. Uh, like, uh, if, if, somebody pr- if somebody predicted that ten years ago and that we were grading that prediction... would feel like it was legit? I would give them, like, a, a B, maybe. A half point? Like, yeah. Because Tesla can kind of... Highway drive for you, right? Yeah, and there, there are like limited testing, but on real roads of like Google self-driving cars and stuff. Uh, so I, I would say that they haven't really arrived. But uh, if I was grading that prediction, I, I hope my prediction could be that accurate. I guess yeah. is what I'm saying. Pretty much, but but things not changing is that um, you will still. If if I was teleported to 40 years in the future and sat down in a group of people playing a game. I would understand what it is, and and it would look familiar. And yeah, and I, I bet that some things are even more common than that. I mean, I feel like we're going to continue to see uh, relatively large texts for most games, like just the amount of words that we used to describe. As in game. more than a board game. More than a board game, yeah. Um, I think that uh, art will still be a big deal in the books. Like, we're, we're not going to end up with kind of the novel kind of look or something like that. Uh, and, and there's lots of room in that for different kinds of art, you know, open-sourced art or whatever. But I, I think that RPGs will continue to be very visual books of some length, for the most part. There's already things that break this now, but... Uh, there was actually a discussion on this on Twitter a couple weeks ago uh, where Luke Crane jumped in and said, like, well, all of this thought about different ways that RPGs could look that maybe would be more inviting to other people mm-hmm. unfortunately doesn't bear out if you're actually trying to make an RPG. And he's got a lot of history with it, and I've, I've worked in his booth and seen what sells, and I kind of agree. Like, the, the small, thin books, there's definitely a niche there, and I think that they, they have some huge upsides. Like, I would love smaller books for a number of reasons yes bookshelf space is one enormous reason yep cost uh 
the amount of time I have to read. Yeah, pretty much. But I mean, you know, a lot of the thing behind RPGs is that the market that you are likely selling to is the market of people that are had previously bought one. Yes. You know, and so any kind of movement in that space has to be pretty much glacial. Because yeah. if you swap entirely and say, uh, you know, hey, I'm going to sell you this one that's just a series of blog posts on the internet, and you have to read all the blog posts to, to know the book, and it's like, no, probably not. And, and I've always wanted uh, a superhero comic, like hopefully from, from somebody like Marvel, that uh, the format of the comic, the, the RPG was basically a comic book, because that would sell to the people who, like, that's a Likes format comic we're used to. Yeah, just an enormous market, too. RPG <laughs> people who like comic books... You know that the, cross section of the population is just so gigantic. I never actually thought of that. I always thought of uh, comic book RPGs as like a way for RPGs to branch out, but in a lot of ways, that's actually just like <laughs> let's take the intersection of two little tiny the intersection of, of two small fandoms. After oh, we're man. done with that, I'll sell you my software engineer uh, knitting <laughs> RPG. Uh, that will sell to a billion people too. Make it as obscure as possible. Uh, yeah, I think that books will continue to. Um, if I had to guess, five to ten years out, I think that RPG books, even in like the size of the books, will often be about the same. We'll see people gravitating towards like the six by nine soft cover, maybe hardcover, and then like the big hardcover D and D book. I think those are continuing to dominate. Dominate. I don't think that's likely to change. Yeah, pretty much. Um, my first, my first one uh, answer episode four is a new hope. Um, I think we'll see a lot more RPGs from really small publishers. Uh -huh. um, so, I mean, going through 70s and 80s, it was you really legitimately had to have, you know, a way to publish this book and mm -hmm. distribute it. But now the rise of the Internet, first, first you can publish something for practically nothing. Uh, and, and second, you can also get involved in the community in the RPG design space you know, you get online and you talk to people and, hey, here's Luke Crane and here's you and Adam and here's all of these people that do this stuff and we'll talk to you and you can write something. And then there's a ton of, you know, I mean, I just submitted my Three Forge thing and I've got my second uh, step here and all of these are democratizing RPG, RPG creation. And I think yep. the similar, a, th a similar thing is happening in many, many fields. You know, uh, music cr production has gotten a lot smaller and you know, general book writing and uh, making a system online and, you know, just whatever. Any any art form you like is is getting much more um, possible to do without an enormous amount of, uh, I guess, publisher funding. So <clears throat> do you think that that'll have effects on the kinds of games that we see? or I um... do. Like your comic book RPG tiny niche, mm -hmm. when you are one person doing it as a side project, you can make a game that is only interesting to five people on the planet. And yeah. those five people can go online and play on Hangouts. Like, you can actually get that thing played, um, which is really cool. I never thought about that. The, the barrier for success used to be that you have five friends or whatever who can play it. Now it's just like there are five people in the world with a computer and compatible schedules. Yeah, and, and that know about it. RPGs. That know like, about it. Like, you have to find them, but... But it's oh, so much easier. You know, it used to be if you wanted to be a musician and actually make money off of it, uh, you better have some serious backing and spend a lot of time in uh, very, very pop, you know, low poverty type of stuff. But now, you know, you can make music and sell it online and practically never have to talk to anybody yeah. um, and make make enough money to, to be happy. So, Well, and the RPG thing, uh, kind of like music for some people, has the nice low bar of being something that you probably like anyway mm -hmm. like the 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 rpg bar to start with for somebody like me was just uh it needs to make enough money that i can put it out without spending my own money like it doesn't right. even have to make make money it just has to not cost me money right and i mean you know we're talking about this in the u.s uh you know first world country definitely where you know kind of you tend to have another hour or two uh, at least per day, if not per week, yep. um, that you can kind of screw around on some hobby project and put it out. And it's like Dungeon World was hobby project. You have a full time job, uh, and being able to do that means that you know suddenly, you know the RPGs that people hear about. I don't think just like in board game spaces, uh, you tell somebody you know how to play board games and that's your thing. They'll ask you Monopoly or Risk. Uh -huh. I don't think you'll. 
I don't think in the next 10 years we will get to the point where, oh yeah, I play RPGs, and they're like, oh, D&D, I think that's probably going to be the thing for quite a while, but... I, I There'll think, be more people that know about stuff. Like Settlers of Catan style, Yeah, people are branching. That was one thing that I uh, kind of had under my first more of the same, is that I think that we'll continue to see um, s- similar audience amounts, but uh, just like we've seen... It's not going to take while, over the world, yeah. It's not going to take over the world. Um, I think that we're in a bit of a growing phase now. Uh, everything that I heard from Gen Con was people selling more than they had ever before, or had at least in a few years... Um, I don't. I think that we we pretty much put to rest most of the RPGs are dying rumors for the moment. Uh, but I do think it's a bit of a, a cycle. Like I do think that it'll probably contract again and get a little bit smaller. Um, overall, there may be a slight growth, but I, I yeah, I don't think it's going to take over the world. I think the interesting thing here is that the hobby space itself is growing. So not just RPGs, but video games and board games and you know just general hanging out with people. Um, kind of space. Yes. Uh, and I think that, you know, we also have a ton of, um, I guess, populist media, which is like Adam Koble doing RPGs online for the, you know, a billion people to watch if they so wanted. Uh, and, you know, kind of the Twitch and, and YouTube game stuff, broadcasting Dota and mm-hmm. other games media, kind of this entire cycle of, um, kind of relatively small-time produced uh, entertainment media that you interact with, and people both wanting to do that interaction but also just kind of watch that interaction. Yeah. Um, so I think all of those markets are currently growing, and I think they probably will continue to for at least a little while. Yep. Um, and, but, I mean, it's not going to be RPGs are going to suck people away from everything else to their exclusion. It's just... Yeah, and I don't think that's a thing to design for. Like we, there's always this uh, stream that sometimes kind of comes to the forefront of people trying to design the game. That like, oh, somebody who loves video games will like this. Right. And uh, I th- man, your thing about comics earlier is really sticking to my head. I don't think that's actually a way to grow things. That's a way to limit your audience to the people who like RPGs and like video games. And maybe a bit on the fringes of both of those. Like, the Worldwide Wrestling isn't just a game for people who like wrestling and like RPGs. It, it actually sucked in people like me who could care less about wrestling but love RPGs. Uh, but, I, yeah, I think something... If that's your big play, like, if Nathan was making Worldwide Wrestling because he thought that this was going to be the game that converts wrestling fans to RPG fans, that... That's not going to happen. Right, but that's the great thing about kind of populist media creation is that you don't have to care about growing the hobby in yeah. some big grand sense. You can say, I really want to play an RPG about wrestling and build something awesome. And I think that's key. Like The, the people who design for growing the hobby, I, I think that's uh, at best a complication to your design and at worst like an active stumbling block. You have to build something that you want to play first yeah. and foremost. Yeah, uh, th- it was actually funny that you were mentioning uh, like big League of Legends Dota kind of games because as I was coming back from Gen Con, I was on flights with people coming to Seattle for the International, International. Uh, which was this weird overlap of nerdy because I'm used to the flights to Gen Con being the like, oh look at all the nerds, and now it was both ways. But slightly different nerd crowds. International was amazing this year, uh, by the way. I had no idea. I do not actually watch it. Dota, Dota, oh man. Uh, digression forever, contact me on G+, if you want to talk about Dota. Um, <laughs> yeah, you you would probably be the design type to care a lot about Dota. A ton. Yeah, so my idea for the future is that we're not going to see... Growth isn't going to be my prediction, I guess. Uh, my, that's part of my keep it the same, is that we're going to... Things are certainly going to change in some ways. Those, those were my other two points, but I don't think it's going to be growth uh, for the most part. Like maybe some creeping up numbers. But. You're not going to walk into a game store on on Friday and see everybody playing RPGs instead of Magic. Exactly. Yeah. There, there's not going to be the equivalent of Friday Night Magic, um, which kind of is by design. I want to say like if if. I played RPGs as casually as I play Magic or Hearthstone or something, it wouldn't quite be the same. Yeah, perhaps. 
That's a that's that's an entire topic of its own. Maybe uh, maybe uh, maybe Next for season, season two. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So uh, okay, number two. Yeah. So I obviously have episode five, Empire Strikes Back. Um, I think. I think that in the next 10 years, we will not see D&D 6. Um, I will not extend that prediction past 10 years because it's Wizards. 10 uh, years is already pretty bold, though. Yeah, but 3.5. 3.5 lasted 10 years, didn't it? Uh, off the top of my head, yes, maybe, but that's that's right at the edge. I think I think the way that their business model is for 5, they definitely want to... They're trying to at least make it the... The RPG. I also think that we're going to see maybe a few more games from Fantasy Flight, who's mm-hmm. been predicting. But these, you know, these large publishers that have been producing, um, they're probably going to have a game for a while. We'll still have L5R. We'll still have GURPS at least for a little while longer. Yeah, GURPS is interesting. They're. It's amazing to me how kind of under the radar Steve Jackson uh, RPG products are most of the time. Um, well, GURPS is, yeah, GURPS is odd. I we've, love we've, GURPS, though. We've talked about GURPS a couple of times, and, you know, it's it's in this very weird space because um, talking about games as experience design, GURPS is a very odd experience. Well, in GURPS, uh, the, I, I see, I have two takes on GURPS. GURPS mm-hmm. is either the make-a-game toolkit, or it's the game of comparing, like, Darth Vader to the Hulk. Like right. And for the former, I feel like, at least in our circles, Apocalypse World is becoming the make-a-game toolkit. I, I don't quite see it as the make-a-game toolkit in the same way. Uh, I agree that it, it is becoming that, but I, I, I don't like that trend. Um, I'm just calling it as I see okay, it. Okay, I, I, I will accept that there are I, more I ex- people making just straight-up, like, how do I make a game uh, because I really love this comic book or whatever. I'm just going to make it with... Uh, apocalypse world like yeah and d20 used to be that thing and yeah. still is in certain places but people that are building stuff now so i explicitly made sure my three forged game was not an <laughs> apocalypse world hack uh all for you luke crane um and i'm going to kind of wanted to be a real designer for sure right uh and i'm trying to rip any vestige of apocalypse world uh, you know yeah. as you know as much as is sane anyways out of the one that i received so yeah, so I, I feel like the the Apocalypse World thing, we're seeing a lot of what you're describing, which is almost the GURPS style of, like, uh, you know, you make GURPS Reign of Steel, Reign of Steel being my favorite GURPS book, uh, and it doesn't really change the design at all. It just kind of tells you how to do giant robots taking over the future totally. uh, with this system. I, I agree, we're seeing a lot of that, but I feel like to say that, that, is, that there's a different legacy of... Um, of Apocalypse World that I hope we see a lot more of, which is the influence on design, some of the clarity, some of the ways of talking about what oh, yeah. it is. I feel like those are the the thing that I want to see keep going, uh, but that's much rarer than the straight well, up. You know, I think that the, the community is gaining a whole bunch from games as games continue to come out. Uh, whether Wizards pays any attention to this or not. Uh, is an interesting subject, and like this is the this is the thing about about my prediction though is that like GURPS, GURPS is practically the same as it was when it first came out. Yeah, and D and D five is not significantly changed version of D and D, right? It's it's because they built yeah. it to be D and D the way you remember D and D, right? Exactly, it's kind of D and D classic in a way. Right, and so you know these these monoliths of design are going to just continue. Uh, I guess uh, poor metaphor as far as movement, uh, maybe <laughs> leviathans of design will just continue lumbering towards mm-hmm. the future. It's I don't think we're going to see a uh, a burning wheel inspired. GURPS or, or uh, you know, an apocalypse-inspired non-Dungeon World D&D. Yeah. Um, though that would be kind of awesome if somebody could out D&D us with Apocalypse World. Uh, but I, I feel like, if anything, we'll, we'll do eventually a second edition that'll, that'll do some of the things that we've figured out since then. It's, it's always a learning process. Right. But uh, 
just because it is so amazing. I have to jump back to the Luke Crane and Colin Buell designer for Apocalypse World <laughs> thing. Because uh, this, I, I will try not to tell too many Gen Con stories, but I was at Gen Con playing a game with Luke. Uh, some other people walked into the room, uh, including Peter Atkinson and Peter. Uh, you were playing Miseries? Or? Yeah, we were playing Luke's game Miseries and Misfortunes, uh, which is a add-on for old day, basically. Um, it, it's wonderful. We had a great time. But uh, Peter introduces some people around the table and is like, here's Luke, he's a designer, and here's Sage and Dana and all these other people. Uh, and Luke's like, no, no, uh, Sage is a designer too. And I'm like, <laughs> for people who have not heard the podcast where Luke said that uh, people who make, uh, that, that Vincent is the designer of Dungeon World and that we just are uh, modifying his system. That was my moment of triumph. Maybe he was talking out. about one of your other games. Maybe he was. I, I did point out to Luke that he just admitted I was a designer. Um, <laughs> but inside baseball, it's, that'll be my only sure. uh, super inside. But it's podcast to podcast, at least. you know. So if you're listening to this podcast, you might have listened to... Uh, which podcast was he on? Anyway. That's yeah. There's there's the uh, the next RPG I can come out with is is the podcast G plus RPG mm -hmm. um, for the 500 people that are part of that community. Yep, right down to the the smallest community possible. Though speaking of communities, my second prediction is uh, diverse games. I think we're mm -hmm. going to keep mm -hmm. on seeing a lot of new voices come into RPGs. Um, and in different ways, uh, the thing that I'm most excited about right now is a lot of people making games that bring their culture in various ways um, to gaming, but don't kind of switch over into like this teaching mode. That we've seen games before where somebody is like, I'm gonna make the game that really uh, tells people about my culture. And then there's also been the games that like, you kind of slap some of your stuff onto a game without changing it enough so that like, if you're still playing uh, early D&D, &D, but with another skin on it, like there's so many assumptions into that genre that right. don't always come at, like work once you're trying to translate it into something else. Um, and the, the thing that I'm seeing now is a lot of people designing games that uh, are both really fun, entertaining games. Like they don't feel teachy, um, but they are. They, they're a way of sharing culture. And the, the two that I wanted to really come out, uh, call out, um, there's, I guess it's not a game fully, but there's, um, an OSR blog called uh, Straits of Anion. I'm probably butchering the pronunciation. Uh, we'll, we'll throw a link in the show notes that you can find it without my horrible pronunciation. Uh, but it's a guy who, uh, his ancestry is Pacific Northwest Natives, and he's bringing that to uh, old school D&D &D in a way that actually makes sense. Um, nice. I, I love when things like that mesh, uh, because there I've seen other things where you layer on some culture and you're like, but we're still basically the European idea of an adventurer. And here, uh, it especially because Moldve is kind of great with like large groups of semi-skilled people all kind of going into a dangerous area for something, which works really well once you take the Pacific Northwest and make it magical and also bring in the incursions of the Europeans and stuff. You know, you're, you're a kind of a band of people going off into, uh, you know, the the land below the lake. Um, he's got all these great blog posts that do the that start out with little snippets of like a traditional story and then bring that in in a way that makes sense. Like it, it's actually an amazing mashup. Um, and the other one that I wanted to bring up is uh, Mark Diaz Truman's Cartel, uh, which was my my game of Gen Con hands down, uh, which is um, narco fiction. So in uh, in Mexico, there's the this history of uh, narcocoletas, which are songs about drug lords and drug dealing, basically. And then narco fiction is kind of the term that sprung up for um, the the stories and fiction that springs up around that. And we would think of that as like Breaking Bad and The Wire and stuff. And so Mark opens with the preface that like he he didn't think he was going to make a game about his culture. Uh, and not that he is like a drug dealer or something, but he's definitely <laughs> dealing with uh, like elements of modern Hispanic culture and everything. And the game flat out says like, no, this game is always set in Durango. Uh, this is while it's inspired by The Wire. You're not doing The Wire. Not even up in Albuquerque for Breaking Bad. Like this is in Durango. Um, and I, I 
really want to bring it to New Mexico because that would make it even more special for me. But it's an amazing <laughs> game, and he the the wonderful thing is um, manages to introduce these concepts in a really sleek way. I'm a I tend to not like fiction or extended like writing in games that's not related to the game, but he opens with three short uh, stories that, as far as I know, are, are true stories of the drug trade that so perfectly sum up the genre he's going for, uh, and he tells them really well, and then just gets straight into the game, um, and it it looks like an amazing game to play. Like, nice. it, it's not a... Let's. It's not a teaching game. Like there was a, an RPG that got posted to Boing Boing recently that was uh, basically playing a black person interacting with the police. Right. Overtly teaching. Overtly teaching. Yeah. Um, and this is nowhere close to that. This is a game that, like, if you like Breaking Bad or The Wire or uh, I, it, there's a bit of a history there. I think that uh, Mark is building on a game that he had that was Gotham Central inspired. So there's. That doesn't shine through much, but even if you like something like that, um, it it is amazing. Let's um, digress a bit into overtly teaching games. Oh no! Um, because so the problem with educational games is that the people that are generally going to be interested to play them will nine times out of ten not be the people that need to play them. Yeah. Uh, and you know that's there's your that's the problem. That's the problem. Yeah. Uh, you know it, the yeah it's 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 an issue. Now a game like Sagas, you know, which is similar, does, yeah, uh, and a, and a game like Worldwide Wrestling, which I mean, I'll, I'll be not a serious topic, but still, here's my culture. Let's talk about my culture. Good point, actually. I had never thought of that, but yeah, totally. And that's I think part of what I enjoy about it because reading and playing that game was like, oh, like I. I learned something about the wrestling culture. Right, but you didn't you didn't go into it saying, I really need to expose myself to this subculture. It's, you know, this sounds like a fun game to play type yeah. of thing. And I think that um, kind of the best spaces uh, for some of these games are to give you the experience of that culture, um, maybe not with so much of a hammer-over-the-head style presentation. Yeah. Um, yeah. But I don't know. Man. I think there's there's so much to be said there. Uh, one of the first games that I encountered that really really nailed this was um, playing through the coin series of games. Yeah. Uh, so those are board games we we've talked about several times. Um, A distant plane, Endy and Abyss, uh, Fire in the Lake, Cuba Libre. Um, they're all counterinsurgency games, which I've told a few people in there immediately. Like, why would you? Playing play a game about something so horrible, and that's right. kind of the point. Uh, I feel like the these games are written by a guy from the CIA, and you play. It's an asymmetrical game where different people are playing different factions, and so you're not you you may be the government, the kind of traditional or what most narratives would call the good guy, most American narratives probably. Um, but it's a very postmodern take on it. It's a very postmodern take. Uh, playing as somebody other than the government, I've always found in those games, and even interacting as the government with those other sides, has given me a, a much better understanding of what else is going on with these other people. Uh, it's super nuanced. It's super nuanced. The the uh, Taliban or the um, the warlords in a distant plane. Who it totally made me rethink my understanding there and all the cards are based on actual historical events so then I went and read on some of these events and I'm like wow like uh, the uh, typical American narrative of our interaction in Afghanistan with the the warlords uh, is kind of we don't know a lot of or we don't care enough to know a lot of the things that happen they're not exactly secret but like they're, they're just things that didn't get covered all that much that once you look into them you're like well no wonder some things really didn't turn out well it's this weird position on how kind of the narrative is discussed mm -hmm. and I'm not sure what all of the background there is I'm sure like oh man so all sorts of things that feed into this so talking about things like uh, Star Wars and fantasy novels in general and Tolkien and stuff, all all very Western ideas of, of fantasy and sci-fi that are super black and white. Like, mm -hmm. hardcore, that guy's the bad guy, this guy's the good guy. As, you know, Tolkien takes it as, 
oh, well, you could become a bad guy, but it's never, you know, oh, yeah, you're a bad guy now, but you're also kind of the good guy, and there's reasons why that guy would do the thing that he thinks he's going to do. Yeah. It's super nuanced, the way that the coin games take it. Um, but then there's a lot of other fiction that's coming out recently. Uh, what is it? Um, strong female protagonist. Have you read yeah. this comic? Yep. Um, they're doing this really nuanced take on kind of uh, how uh, on the Watchmen idea, basically, mm-hmm. uh, legitimate real life superhero type thing. Um, but yeah, it's really there's a lot of space here for people to bring their points of view, uh, and I'm I'm most excited for those points of view to be people that we haven't heard from as much. Yeah. Um, People of different like cultural and ethnic backgrounds and gender, uh, all these spaces. Gaming is traditionally such a white male space for the most part, and like hearing these different things, and and that's not to say that like white males can't uh, make things that can cover these topics. It just they're, you're kind of at a disadvantage. You're talking about something that you haven't experienced as deeply as somebody else has yeah and that's the really curious thing from i mean our perspective both white male software engineers right yeah Uh, i'm really interested in playing games by people that are very much not like me yes um playing playing a game like cartel even uh which will put me in a situation that's super different like we could totally play a game of i don't know burning wheel where the elves are being persecuted for being a minority, but we'd have no idea how that would really feel, you know? Yeah. I, I think that's the danger of a lot of, uh, a lot of fantasy settings that bring in kind of casual, like, oh, nobody likes the dwarves or whatever. Right. Like, if you're... Depending on how you bring that in, I think it can be very cheap. Yeah. Um, and you have to treat it... Oh, man, it's, it's hard. It's tough. But yeah, so I think a lot of this comes also from the populist movement of exactly. RPGs. Like, you can't have a game like Worldwide Wrestling unless you have people that are, you know, don't have to worry about a publisher trying to figure out if it's going to sell. Yes. Um, you can't have, uh, you can't have a lot of this kind of stuff. And you have to have a broad enough audience that uh, people happen to come to RPGs who have a broad set of interests. Uh, you know, if the less diverse the RPG scene is, the less likely we're to get something, even like World Out Wrestling, like just the crossover of people who are fans of both RPGs and wrestling. Uh, I actually keep on waiting for a really good sports RPG in the team sports. Like, there's Contenders, which does kind of the boxing thing pretty well. Um, and there's Worldwide Wrestling, that uh, though that's a bit more showmanship than sport. Where you'd be um, a team or, or like a manager? I, I'm thinking almost Friday Night Lights, kind of. Like the, the type of uh, fiction that we do around team sports. Or like the, the classic, all the movies, you know. Uh, what is it? Um, Bean Green, which is a remake of... Anyway, all the like, you're a prison team of playing against the... Oh, sure. The the classic sports movie that ends in the massive pep talk and all the team bands together to... Yeah, I don't think it can be quite that pre- predictable. Because you could I do the Sandlot. Exactly. Like, the, there's this huge thing of sports, and, and I think those actually overlap with gaming more and more. Uh, I've become a football fan in the last few years. With uh, a Seahawks shirt on right now. Yeah, I'm wearing my Seahawks shirt because today is the first preseason game and I've reached the point where I watch the preseason games. Um, so this is something that We've me lost about, you, Sage. yeah, five, ten years ago would have been like, what the heck? <laughs> um, but I found that there's actually overlap with a lot of people in the RPG community. I tweet back and forth with Luke Crane about Marshawn Lynch. Being awesome, down. Or... <laughs> um, and uh, George R. R. Martin blogs about it, which is hilarious. If you go to his Live Journal, because of course George R. R. Martin is still on Live Journal, he posts about uh, he's a I think Jets fan. Which sorry, George R. R. Martin, you're in for a rough year at this rate. But uh, it it's there's this overlap of things that you might not otherwise find, which was kind of funny when I was at Gen Con. Uh, there was a One Direction concert nice. in Indianapolis at the same time, <laughs> and I tweeted randomly like. Like, this is one of the strangest crossovers because we uh, that was the night that we had like made reservations for a nicer dinner. And we were at this <laughs> nicer restaurant, and there was all these like moms with their kids about to go to the concert awesome. at the restaurant as well. And I was like, this is one of the stranger crossovers. And somebody else was like, yeah, not as strange as the year there's a preseason football game. And I'm like, I, I disagree on that one. Like, 
Yeah, I bet you there were a bunch of One Direction people at Gen Con that were like, let's go to Gen Con, and, and we can go to the concert. Yeah. Though I, I think that there were probably more people who, for a preseason football game, were like, oh, I could see it. Yeah, anyway. Yeah, craziness. But I would love to see the, the kind of Friday Night Lights RPG. Uh, and I've, at one point, taken notes on it based on Night Witches, because Night Witches does this amazing thing where... The, the mission that you go on, you only do kind of a few roles to resolve the key moments, uh, and most of it is the training time, basic uh, training and prep and all that between them. I think I'd approach it the same way because that's basically what Friday Night Lights does. And like, as you move between cities to play your games, you could uh, switch, switch DMs. DMs. Yep, uh, because it could be a field schedule, and yeah, it could be. There, there's all kinds of potential there for boiling down the the game into a few key moments that you roll uh, and I almost imagine it as like a random encounter table based on the team you're playing so that people can contribute like oh if you want to play my made up like Gotham City Knights because that's the fictional team that plays in a football team and Batman's down uh, you can play the uh, you know you roll on this table to find out what the like key plays of the game are the highlight reel the highlight reel and then you play out moment to moment how that play goes and then cut through and then somehow you generate a score at the end and that sets you up for the next session because you know we're all hating on you because you dropped the pass right but uh, the big celebration that you did everybody anyway Totally. So someday, uh, after all the other things. Yeah, on the back burner. No, it's, it's really important that the, that the community is getting super inclusive because, um, you know, we both work at Google and have done, you've done this, right? The, uh, the unconscious bias unconscious training. Unconscious bias, yes. Um, uh, and it's available for anybody who wants to watch it. There's a YouTube video. Please watch it. It's amazing. And some of the stuff that we do, because, I mean, Google, Google's like this. We present research so that, you know, we try and make sure that we're not just doing things because we're doing things. Um, there's a lot of benefits that have been studied about making sure you have a diverse environment, in particular, having a neurodiverse and, and you know, and varied environment makes everybody more creative. So if you have 15 uh, white mangle, male Anglo-Saxon Protestants in a room with the same background, you're going to get a much less creative output than if everybody is different. Yep. Um, so it's actually important, and it's nice having lots of various interesting people in and RPGs. I, I think that the, the diversity that I'm most excited about is certainly the, the cultural and gender and neurodiversity um, coming to it. Like, we, we kind of got sidetracked by, like, football Sports. and wrestling and stuff, which is, which is something that we can know about because hobby it, diversity is much easier. Hobby diversity is so much easier, uh, but it, it's not as exciting. Mm-hmm. Like the, the fact that uh, as much as I love worldwide wrestling, and if you haven't played it yet, you should because it's a blast, uh, that is not as exciting to me as Cartel or Streets of Anion. Oh, I'm going to butcher that pronunciation. Because <laughs> uh, those things are actually bringing things that I haven't lived. Like if I wanted to become a wrestling fan... There are no barriers to being a white like, male wrestling fan. <laughs> um, but I, I haven't experienced some of these other things, and I don't have like a, a history of culture. Like I, I think this is the case for a lot of people like me. I don't even have a strong white male culture for the most part. It's just, uh, you know, I had some Italian family, some Scottish family. Who knows? They're kind of all over the place. But the, I think that diversity is going to grow. That would be my prediction. Um, but I think, and like you said, is the democratization. I think that diversity is going to grow in every visible field. Um, and let's if, hope. Let, let's hope. And if RPGs are the whole town, I don't know if I'll be around. Like that would be, <laughs> that would it, be a sad time. Yeah, if RPGs are have some kind of backlash against that, that's going to be. Uh, uh, things are hard. What's uh, your you number three? Do, okay, I'll do my number three. Yeah, we, we've well, been alternating is, firsts. Yeah. Well, you know what my number three is going to be. Well, I know which movie it's going to be, and now I wish uh, maybe I should have done the prequel trilogy. No way! You don't <laughs> want. Don't get involved in that. So this is my uh, what was it? Rise of the Sith. Uh, yeah. <laughs> oh gosh. Yeah, this like I said, you really is. don't want it to be. Yeah. Uh, because, yeah, Attack of the Clones would have been my diverse voices. <laughs> my diverse clones. <laughs> yeah, let's let's not make mine the prequel. So my number three, uh, and this is probably my most daring prediction. The other two I feel really confident in. This is my, well, i got to say something that people can say I'm wrong about. Uh, I think that we are going to see a decline of big companies in RPGs. I actually feel like, uh, I think that you're right, that a few big companies will hang in there with maybe one game. But, but they're, not publi- they're not really publishing anything new. 
right? It's they're continuing their product line. But I, I feel like even then we're going. I think it's likely to see a bit of a drop off in that. Like uh, I guess it, if I have to give like a a key result that they can this can be measured to uh, in five to ten years, one of the companies publishing like a top five on ICV two kind of game right now will not be publishing an RPG in five to ten years. Oh, man. Uh, and I think we're going to see the rise of um, not just self-publishing, that we see a lot of that, but small companies that are hard to distinguish from self-publishing to a lot of people's views. Um, so that's stuff like Lamentations of the Flame Princess, uh, Evil Hat, um, or the kind of... Uh, single person slash publisher thing like Monty Cook Games publishes games by people other than Monty Cook uh, but that kind of personal brand becoming a small publisher brand um, I, I do not think that, that I think that the, the far end of this prediction that I wouldn't bet on but I'm curious to see is D&D leaving Watsy for a much smaller company on on the scale of something like Evil Hat or something like that. Oh, the other publisher I meant to call it is Goodman Games for TCC. Um, right. All of these places publish work from multiple people, but under a very clear kind of personal direction to a degree. Um and I think we're going to continue to see more of that. And I think they're going to dominate to a degree. I would be enormously surprised if, if, not if, not if D and D left Wizards. I can see that, um, but D and D leaving the uh, the tight grip of Hasbro yeah. um, would just blow me away. Uh, I think because because okay, so my background here, Hasbro a long time ago bought Avalon Hill. Uh, a long time ago, eighties, nineties, because Avalon Hill was dying. 80s. Avalon Hill published war games, and Hasbro bought Avalon Hill because Avalon Hill was the big war game publisher. Mm-hmm. Av- Hasbro did not care about Avalon Hill. Hasbro did not care about most of Avalon Hill's properties to the point where, um, you know, a bunch of them just kind of went dormant, and you cannot find anymore because yep. that's life. Uh, one of them, in fact, ASL. Uh, somebody went to Hasbro and said, hey, you know, I'd like to publish Squad Leader. I've done Squad Leader again. Um, and I think you have the rights because you bought the company that did it. Can I have the rights? And they're like, we're not, we don't think we have the rights. Uh, <laughs> hold on. And they basically had to search for Avalon Hill properties to try and get them out. Yep. So it's less that I think that Hasbro really wants D&D and more that I think that... They're not going to let something go. Yeah, as long as it's not hemorrhaging money, they're not going to drop it. I, I don't think it is. Like from what I can tell, they're they're doing pretty well with fifth edition. Um, it just has to be revenue neutral. Yeah, um, because otherwise it's not going to. Nobody's going to pay any attention to it. Like Hasbro makes money off of Halo Monopoly, so yeah, uh, whatever. And, and they make money off of D and D Monopoly, and yeah, having the the brand in some ways, though I I feel like they could. If I was backseat company, uh, that I think they could do better things with the brand. But um, I, I think that we're more likely to see something like uh, I, I really don't know if Fantasy Flight is in it for the long term with RPGs. That is a really good question. Because they currently have a top five. Uh, they might even have two top five ICV2. Star Wars is top five? Yeah. Star Wars is top five. Last Star time Wars I is pretty good. Uh, end of the world stuff. Oh man. Um, the sorry, what? So Fantasy Flight's End of the World series. Oh yes, yeah. I thought you meant Star Wars End of the World, and I was like, I haven't heard of that one. They're definitely interested, um, and Fantasy Flight's under Asmodee now, so they have money. Um, and books are relatively cheap in the grand scheme of things. It's not like they don't need any new distribution plans. They don't need any of that kind of stuff. I'm sure Star Wars is selling really well because of the license. And yes. Fantasy Flight really knows Star Wars. Like, Fantasy Flight Star Wars stuff is amazing. Yeah. Um, I think the question is whether End of the World does well for them. Yeah. Uh, and to be perfectly honest, it has no right doing any doing well. Really? Um, I haven't looked through it very much. I... Somebody play End of the Worlds and and 
and come in on a second opinion. You're not interested enough to try it yourself. Um, well, well, the issue is... Uh, so, on the Pro, Fantasy Flight is producing games that are, on the whole, designed pretty well. Um, but are also pretty straightforward. Here is a topic that will sell whether or not the game is good. Mm-hmm. We'll produce it. Um, and so, you've got all the Star Wars stuff. Now, Fantasy Flight... Thank goodness, all the Star Wars stuff is super good. Uh, you know, uh, we've played Imperial Assault. Imperial yeah. Assault is amazing. And I, um, I've played what was their first one? Um, Edge of Edge, Edge of the Empire. Edge of the Empire. Yes. Yeah, and that was that's pretty good. I mean, the the kind of tea leaf reading version of of die rolling is pretty cool. Yeah, and it's at least different. Um, but I mean, End of the World is oh, people are interested in the apocalypse. Let's make apocalypse games. Um, I'm just super cynical about the entire thing. Hopefully, hopefully it'll turn out really good. Uh, the concept is very much one that most people have probably discussed with their group. Hey, let's play a zombie game where we're all us. Mm-hmm. Uh, and you could really use any mechanic you wanted for that kind of thing. Um, yeah, their biggest selling point is definitely in the concept. Uh, not because I actually haven't read these particular games, but I, I looked into them and I was kind of like, is this something that I want to spend my time reading? And considering how much of the time was spent pitching the concept, uh, it it didn't make me want to read the game, I guess. Like, yeah. I was like, yeah, that's a cool concept, but you haven't told me anything about why I'd want this to do it and not just say, like, let's play D&D and make yourself as a character. Yeah, that's the really interesting part is that it seems like for these concepts, a much better deal would be play the RPG you already know. Uh, but since Fantasy Flight is a board game company, and they've got Star Wars, their goal may just be people know about D and D, and they assume D and D is purely fantasy. So here, let's put out some RPGs that will be sit next to D and D on most game store shelves, yep. uh, and with nothing else nearby, right? Uh, and we can have people check those out. But yeah, I, I think that that's probably part of what's going through their their minds. Um, but I. I this is definitely my riskiest uh, suggestion. I actually feel like if if I'm right about this one, I would almost bet that uh, a big company outside the U.S. replaces them as far as um, not necessarily the same properties, but as far as kind of their place in the pecking order. Because um, there's been a few things over the past few years, uh, Shadows of Esteran and Mutant Year Zero, which are both games that are coming to us from Europe through various means, um, that both have had some de- like they're they're good games um, in a lot of ways. Uh, Mutant Year Zero is the kind of hot new one this year, and I was actually quite surprised by how uh, it was designed. I guess um, I, I unfortunately didn't get a copy because they sold out before I could. Uh, I. It was one of my Sunday purchases and never put off anything until Sunday <laughs> with the way things are selling now. Like, we sold out of... The, I think the Burning Wheel booth sold out of every physical thing they had to sell. Nice. Um, Congrats. So, yeah, nobody wait until Sunday anymore. You're, you're just going to be like me and be sad that you didn't get Mutant Year Zero. But I got to flip through the book, and some of the GMing sections are arguably... Uh, you could think of them as rephrases of Apocalypse World stuff. Not in that I mean that they're, like, copying, but, like, they're, uh, they give you a very clear agenda of, like, these are things you do as a GM, complete with, like, kind of bulleted lists. Um, and then they have something kind of moves, like, these are the things that happen, that you as the GM can make, uh, can use as, like, inspiration for things to happen when they are within, uh, what do they call it, the arc or something, like, the place that you kind of are safe within, and then when you're out in the wasteland. Um, but I think I think D and D is not just the main game on game store shelves. I think D and D is a cultural touchstone. Yes. At which point it's going to take a long time for it to not be the, you know, when you talk about RPGs, it's going to be a long time before people are not thinking D and D. Oh, I, I totally um, agree. I, but I mean, for settlers, that took fifteen years. So. And I feel like uh, I made this prediction broad enough that I've got a few outs uh, because, like, I um, I think Paizo is doing really well currently. They definitely have That's some true, yeah. a bigger presence than uh, Wizards of the Coast, but I think that their challenge is long term. Like, 
they kind of made their name by saying, this we're going to keep game. the game that you want alive, and this is the game. We don't make other games. We make maybe games based on this one, like the adventure card game or whatever. But this is the game that we make, and we're going to support the heck out of it. Um, so negative prediction, you think that Paizo is not going to produce Pathfinder uh, No, I'm, I, I'm deliberately hedging my bets in that I think that uh, I'm saying that one big company at least would drop out. And I, I could make the case for Fantasy Flight in that they... They would stop publishing RPGs. They would stop publishing RPGs and just go back to board games. I could make the case for Paizo in that I think they've got a challenge in how to keep Pathfinder going. Um... They, they do have enough dedicated fans who are in there for the supplements, and we'll pick up all of them, but I feel like any um, ongoing supplement thing like that is going to have some attrition of people eventually being like, actually, I'm pretty much done, and new people who come in don't need to be kind of at the head of it. They right. can get your back catalog. So I, I, I... And they may have some brilliant solutions to this, but I, I don't know. And if they do Pathfinder 2... Um, they kind of came in as we're going to keep the game you like alive with kind of minimal touch-up. They, I wonder how much backlash they would get from Pathfinder 2, I guess. I'm curious what their influx is, um, because, I mean, this is something that uh, Wizards thinks about a lot for Magic the Gathering, specifically. Mm -hmm. Like, if you... And, I mean, it's true for, for everything, really. Uh, it's not just retention that you have to pay attention to. You also have to have new faces. Yeah. Um, and you don't just have to have new faces to grow, but to stay alive. Yeah. Uh, and so, you know, they talk about that a lot in Magic the Gathering. And I'm curious, as Pathfinder gets to be a larger and larger pill to swallow, how much they're looking at new faces and incoming and, and all this kind of stuff. Um but yeah, massive speculation. Massive, I, I don't mean this to, to bash on either of those companies. I think they're they're doing things. They're doing well things well. I just I I wanted to make a bold prediction somewhere in there, which is what a, some larger company will step out of RPGs and uh, either kind of a semi personal company or a company from outside the U.S. will step into that slot. That would be my bold prediction. Uh, well, I'm I'm nowhere near so bold uh, with Return of the Jedi. Yeah, um, I'm pretty sure uh, that this is you know this is pretty much foregone conclusion. I think that everybody, all of the large RPG designers will continue will publish another large RPG. So, so I don't think you're basically that, doing the opposite of mine. Pretty much, I don't <laughs> think that I don't no I, not not publishers, but like I don't think that Burning Wheel is Luke Crane's last game. Right, no. he's he's doing other things. I don't think that. Uh, you know, Vincent Baker has done things before uh, Apocalypse World, and he will do things after Apocalypse World. Um, I think there will be more games after Fate Core 3, I think, uh, because that's one of the really cool things about this space. We talk about Gygax and D&D &D as if that's his only game and Arneson's only game. Mm -hmm. um, but I think with modern RPG design especially, um, it's much more like board game design. Yeah. where this is a type of game that I really like designing, so I'm going to design as many of them as I can, hitting as many different spaces as I can. Uh, and I'm very excited for that, personally. I, I think that's uh, a solid prediction. I think that uh, it is not as bold as mine. Uh, no. I, I would probably bet on that one. Um, I think that the a question that I wrote down on my uh, big publishers leaving, partially because I think like you said earlier, it's easy to democratize publishing now. Mm -hmm. um, I left myself a question of why are novels not more like this? Yeah, uh, Novels have pretty much all the same benefits that we do in RPGs as far as like you could easily get your own books on Amazon, uh, you could easily put them in a digital format through Amazon and other places, uh, you can easily print them at you know, not too much of a cost, but there's still big publishing houses. Um, it, this is probably the argument against my prediction and the argument kind of uh, the, the thing that made me think of that is that writing novels I think is like designing games or designing board games or designing RPGs like it's not something that you kind of sum it up uh, unless you are unfortunate enough to die after you're kind of I don't know so the biggest difference between writing a book and making a game is that if you write a book 
it becomes this thing that has very little meaning unless unless you can share it. Mm-hmm. Um, I could make a game that I only play with the people at work, and that's totally fine. But a lot of the people that are writing books, like the reason they are writing a book is because they want to get it published. Oh, uh, fair point. Right? I, yeah. As, as an indie musician, one of the things I really, really want is to have somebody pick up an album of mine because that would prove that I'm worth something, right? Mm-hmm. Um, but as far as, as far as RPGs, I wouldn't mind getting an RPG published solo because that's what a lot of RPGs are done is published solo. Like a bunch of the... The uh, publishers that I really respect are publishing their own game, and so that's less of a, a downside in the RPG space as it is in the music and novel space. Good point. Like being accepted by that space, but there are people that do their own books. You can find people that are self-publishing. You can find and Lulu, like is a, yeah, or at least was, um, or people that do long-running blog-style stories or web comics. That are I'm publishing my publishing yeah. uh, my webcomic for years and years and years. So it does happen in other spaces. I agree that it happens. I just uh, in and part of this going into my third but why are there, there large like, publishers? Yeah, the in RPGs the distance between the large publishers and uh, something like Evil Hat. Like Evil Hat has shown up on the top five through retail list. Right. Um, and looking at their numbers, like Dungeon World, if we had a line of products instead of a single product and and they were selling as well like our basically our core products are on par with theirs if, right i think we might have even outsold them like we um and we're we're self-publishing like we're uh, the the tier right below the the big publishers is so much closer i guess i feel yeah totally uh than in books like yeah well you look at board games um and so we talk about Monopoly and Risk, and you know I ridicule them in fun, but Monopoly sells more copies in probably a day than hobby games sell in a month. Yeah. If you sell 20,000 copies of your hobby game in its lifetime, you're doing amazingly well. Yep. Uh, Monopoly probably sells 20,000 copies in an hour or something crazy. Uh, it's just... The, the distance is so gigantic. And I think that's, it's similar with books and it's similar with music. Uh, just the, the eyes, the number of eyes. But so if you're going to have a bold prediction, I have to have a bold oh, prediction. Oh, okay. So we're getting... Uh, you're getting episode seven, whatever been, its name is? Yeah, and I can't, I'm blanking on the name. Oh, no. Oh, good. Then I don't have to follow it. Uh, the Force Awakens. The Force Awakens? Oh, that's, that's, that's okay. I can handle that. Um, I think that internet play is going to become... Uh, a shaping force in RPGs. As in, a lot of RPGs have been built to play face-to-face. Like, they work best face-to-face. They work best when you can roll your dice on the table in the middle of you. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, they work best when you can reach over and grab somebody's character sheet. And I think that we're going to see a lot more where... Uh, I mean, we saw view screen, right? I was about to bring up view screen. And I think that with... Uh, I mean, Adam Koble's stuff is really, really popular, uh, especially for RPGs. And uh, the games of D&D that the Penny Arcade guys play online is mm-hmm. are really, really popular. And I think that uh, as stuff like Roll20 and, and things get, get more and more involved, being able to play something online uh, is, you know, you will see pieces of books that say this is how best to play this if you're going to play it online. Yep. Um, we see this actually in war games where they say, if you're going to play this over Vassal, by email, here's the best way to structure the turn so you don't have to interrupt yourself every 20 seconds. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that's going to be a real thing in RPGs. Uh, yeah, I think it, it, it will be. And uh, I mean, it, it even has be, been becoming bigger for me. Uh, my gaming group is currently on hiatus uh, because some members of our group just had a kid a couple weeks ago. So we're not doing our normal game night. Uh, and so I'm setting up online games and it. I've played online games before, but they had always been kind of the, like, somebody really wants to play Dungeon World with you, so I'm playing with strangers, and it's a bit more of a con game thing. Now that I'm setting up games with my friends online, it's surprisingly good. Uh, And the ironic part being that I've worked, and, like, I work on Hangouts. I know how good video calling is. (laughs) It was my first job at Google, and... uh, 
and I knew how well it worked for RPGs, but it had always been for me the like run it for strangers who were just curious about the game, which is okay. But uh, now that it's playing with friends, I don't get to see that often. Right. And but still being in like the comfort of my home and being able to just like walk over to the fridge and grab a beer. Yeah, it's impressive. Yeah, and there's there's much more that you can do as far as uh, long term campaign games where. Uh, maybe you have your thing where, okay, we can play for an hour or whatever, um, but the way that the game is structured, there's a whole bunch of stuff that can happen on email or G+, yeah. or whatever, between. Or maybe you're playing this game where you farm out to Twitter uh, a bunch of questions about what the next thing is going to happen. Like, I think, I think that that kind of stuff is going to show up in RPG text as opposed to just being, you know, some DM's personal hack. Yep. I, I think you're right. Uh, I think that that is... But it's a reasonable, bold prediction. You've put in a bold prediction. I'll give you that. Um, Within the next, I don't know, yeah. five years, ten years. But I, I think that's uh, and that's an exciting thing. That's part of the democratization of play as well that we were talking about. Like, once you don't have to find your local group and kind of make friends with people locally, if you right. have your group of friends who you know get along with you can keep uh, the play going and the the interesting thing about RPG communities is that I think the uh, so much of an RPG community is having both your own game going on so that you kind of have an actual experience to contribute but the community is not necessarily where you play games like sometimes right. you, you find people to play with games with there but so much of the online community is you share an interest but you don't actually do that interest with most people you communicate it with online and <laughs> once you can play that game online like the more people who can keep their own games going enables more people to kind of stay connected to the larger diaspora of online communication about games right um big words yeah we're just throwing them out there i like it you know i i feel pretty good about all our predictions i think only a few of them are are particularly risky need to be more bold well, you know, maybe this will become our traditional season ender once we get to uh, our second season. It's just to be we'll, super bold. Well, it'll just be. We'll, we'll bring. Maybe this will be our first repeat question. We'll end each session. Uh, uh, and hey, it'll be a good time to look at our past ones. It's true. It's true. If we did it about once a year, and right after Gen Con. Right after Gen. Yeah, maybe we'll start being a little more regular about this. Yeah, dangerous times. But uh, for now, this is going to be the end of our first season. We're going to uh, take a break for a while. Uh, maybe throw together some shorter content from time to time but who who knows we we have other things going on as well and uh we will hopefully return with a season two where we will uh take more questions and ramble about games more and be wrong more and hopefully have people on yeah oh yeah we always meant to have guests on and we never quite did it yes but now i've got a house uh yes. and so i can have my microphone out more often and easily and you know, that makes me feel bad because you've always been at my house and it's not like I said we couldn't have a third person. Well, but, uh, until until recently, there's it's no good. It's no <laughs> good being at my house. But now I have a house, so good times. Well, next season will we'll be exciting guests. Woo. Uh, if you want to be a guest, ping one of us. Maybe yeah. we'll have you on remotely. Oh, that'd be interesting. Yeah, now that we've talked about that being the future of uh, gaming. Well, uh, until our second season, this is uh, Sage and Adam. Uh, this has been another question.